Where did you like to play as a child? I ask this question a lot because childhood memories shape us into the people we become. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Ritson. Thanks so much for joining me. I talk a lot about play. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an educator, and I'm a playground designer. So I want to gather some of my favorite people who are advocates of children and nature and create a space to have an honest conversation about getting more kids outside. The power of play is very often underestimated and I think we all need a little more play in our lives. Um, Welcome to another Play It Forward Worthy podcast. Um, I've got a real treat for you today. I've got someone that um, I'm constantly referring to the information that I've learnt through um, the amazing Nathan Wallace, the people I've spoken to in the sector that are familiar with his work find it invaluable um he's also one of the busiest people in the field that i come across is the type of person that makes you feel lazy um i found some information online saying he's done 250 presentations in one year which is too much makes me feel tired thinking about it um and the father the big father role that's probably the most important role um, and his background is as it's quite a rap sheet, early childhood yeah. teacher, therapist, lecturer on neuro, um, neurological training, um, a consultant for the New Zealand Education Department and consultant for the New Zealand Minister for, of Vulnerable Children. Um, that is quite a rap sheet. So thank you so much for joining us and um, being a part of the Play It oh, Forward cheers, podcast. Yeah. Um, I've been Good looking for this one. All the way from New Zealand via Zoom. Um, did I capture everything in that? What else is there? Oh, yeah, you got, got pretty much most things in there. I've had a varied path to get here. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, I think you captured most of it. That's the well-worn path. That's where we want to be. Um, yeah. So being an early uh, childhood advocate and where am I? Look at my, don't you? It's really neuroscience. It's neuroscience that ties it all together. I mean, that's what I do essentially, brain development. Brain teach brain development people. You know, but that can relate to counselling and trauma. It can relate to just early childhood and uh, primary school. Yeah. Just brains. Yeah, I I came across a perfect summary that I thought, and they referred to you as a neuroscience translator, making that science palatable and understandable for all of these sectors that are so passionate about you. Yep. Um, so let's start with a simple one. Um, what's okay. your why in getting here and why neuroscience? Why neuroscience? I think I've always been passionate about children. So I was just one of those people that, you know, loved kids from the since I remember. Um, I, I'd have lots of little cousins and stuff around and people would be like, hand the baby to Nathan because baby's like Nathan. So it's just something that was always part of my identity. Um, and... So I studied human development at university. I suppose I was just interested in people. And then I was just in the right age at the right time, really, living in the age of neuroscience. They called the 1990s the decade of the brain because that's really when brain scanning hit the scene. And so I was a lecturer in human development. Brain development's a part of that. Just happened to be doing that in a time when it hit the scene and exploded. So, yeah, um, I, I, I just find brains fascinating. And I found that it's a universal sort of language. You can, you can involve everybody. Um, you know, mum and dad and the professionals, all the different sorts of backgrounds. It relates to, you know, sort of everybody's got a brain. 
So it relates to so many different things. So yeah, it's almost universal for people. Yeah, I, th- I can see the like I've seen you talk a number of times and looking around mm-hmm. at the participants of those talks, you can see them getting that confirmation that, oh, that makes sense now. You got, yeah, I have this amazing <laughs> knack of explaining um, what people innately know as truth but putting it in the data so they can actually understand it. Yeah, I think that's just reflecting the sort of privilege I've had of the jobs that I've had. Whereas like for 15 years I was a lecturer in like human development. So, I, you know, it was part of my job to become familiar with all of that research. And so that was like a privilege. And then I think I just take that body of knowledge that anybody else would get if they had done the same job for 15 years, really, and then translate it into plain, normal speak. Because, like I say, everybody's interested in the brain. So you're talking to every different profession. So you can't bog it down in jargon. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what I bring to the picture. I come from a working class background. And at a, a family that's probably not super educated, so I can just speak quite normally for people to be able to understand it, not shroud it in intellect speak. Yeah, I can speak intellect speak when I need to, but I find it's never very productive. Even the intellects like it when you just speak plainly yeah. <laughs> and just say how it is. Yeah, and um, it comes comes down to making it accessible. Yeah, it's dead right. Um, and that led yeah. you into that delving into that. Um, decade of the brain and one of the amazing talks that you do is the first thousand days talk yep and the outlining of the first thousand days um for those listeners that aren't familiar with the impact of the first thousand days on childhood development um yep you do have a great summary of this (laughs) so i'll bring it over to you I mean, we already take lots of complex science and summarize it to an hour and a half in the lecture, but I can summarize it to 30 seconds. Here. I've seen you do it. I've seen you, you know, do essentially, it. Essentially, the first thousand days is the biggie that we learned from the 1990s. The first thousand days refers to conception until a thousand days after that, which takes you to about the age of two and a half. Now, for the first thousand days of life, the human brain is designed to interact with the environment to see what sort of brain you're going to need for the rest of your life. That simply means that we're not set in our genes like our parents thought. Like our parents thought of Albert Einstein was your birth father, sweet, we're going to be good at maths because you have the genes for it. Now, what we learned in the 1990s is genes are only half the equation. The other half is that you're data gathering for this first thousand days. So even if Einstein's your father, if you in the first thousand days are locked in a dark cupboard and just sustained alive, you're not going to be good at maths or science because it's not just all encoded in your genes. You'd have the potential to be good at maths or science, because but genes are only half of it. And the data you gather inside a dark cupboard would be so low that, you know, that you wouldn't activate that intelligence. So it's your outcomes are essentially half genetic genes and half the data that you gather in the first thousand days of life. And that's essentially it in a nutshell. We can talk forever about, you know, what that data is, but it's essentially, it's the relationship with the person the baby loves most in the world. The more they get of that and the better quality of that there is in the first thousand days, the better all their outcomes are. That's the simplest way I can put it. And um, having that paternal um, cheerleader, as I've heard you refer to it, that cheerleader yeah, yeah. that's there for you. Yeah, it doesn't have to be maternal, though. It can be paternal. Yeah. It can be the baby. It's only our culture that says that it's got to be the mother. Um, gender and science, uh, science and biology, there is no preference. A baby's not born with a preference to attach to the maternal yeah the baby's born with a program in their brain saying attach to whoever talks to me the most yeah of course if we leave mum at home she's going to be the one talking to him the most but if dad stays at home like with our prime minister you know if dad stays at home 
um, and dad's the one talking to the baby the most, then that's who baby will attach to. So yep. it's not a gender-specific thing. That's a interaction-specific thing. Or, or a nanny or a grandparent. Yeah, or it doesn't have to be related. No. It's just whoever talks to them the most. Yep. And which is usually the person who loves them the most. Yeah, so that's real um, contradiction to uh, that um, myth of what's it take a village to raise a child? No, no, it does take a village to raise a child, but that's referring to their whole 18 years of their life. No village has really interpreted that as meaning that your mum has a newborn baby, hands it out for 10 and says, there you go, village, we'll put that on a roster and take a turn, hitch. <laughs> yeah. No village has done that. that. Yeah, it does take a village to raise a child, but that refers to the whole 18 years of their life. Not in the first year, just about every culture that we examine values that dyadic relationship, that one-on-one relationship in the first 18 months of life. And even in communal family, more indigenous groups like the Māori here in New Zealand, um, where the, there is more of a communal model, yeah, yep. so the grandparents might shift in when you have the baby, but that doesn't mean that everyone's doing 25% each. There's yeah. still one main caregiver. They've just now got all the support team around them, which is a wonderful thing, but they've still got a one-on-one relationship, and it's that one main person sort of forms the, the foundation for your brain, the foundation for all the relationships you're ever going to have. Your brain just expects that one-on-one relationship. So even if you've got four people doing 25% each, the baby will still attach to which one of them talks to them the most. Wow. From that 25% of the time they're with them. Because, yeah, it's just programmed into your brain to need that one-on-one. So, yeah, it does take a village, but yeah, not so much in the first 18 months. Yeah, and the, to extend on that, the um, part that blows my brain is the evidence support um, that reflects the firstborn child and let me remember uh, – the right, firstborn yeah. and non-firstborn as a classification. Yeah, yeah, the that's right. The firstborn and yeah. everyone else. <laughs> the firstborn and everyone else, yeah. We only have those two categories. That's because there's no statistical difference in the outcomes for your kids, two, three, four. They grow up on average to be in the same income bracket, the same qualification bracket. But yeah, you're right. The big leap is between child number one and all the other kids. On average, child number one grows up to be substantially, usually substantially more qualified and earning more money than all of the other kids. Now, it's not every single time. This is population data. It just means out of a random population of 100, majority of the time, the eldest child is the highest qualified and earns the most money. We often joke that if the eldest child becomes a teacher, like a real chance we're going to be the richest <laughs> in the family, right? So 100%. that's why we have to do 100, 100 people so that we can include the lawyers and the CEOs and stuff, the higher paid jobs. Yeah. But yeah, so larger on average is that gap between how much the eldest child earns and all the other kids. We just put them into those two categories. Firstborn children and not firstborn children. So I think that reflects this data gathering in the first thousand days. Because your eldest child doesn't get the best genes. That's not how it works. That's pretty random who you give your genes to. The advantage that the eldest child gets is really this extra interaction and this face-to-face interaction in the early years. Um, you know, if I can speak 10,000 words to my first child a day, I'm only speaking you know, 6,000 words to my second child a day because I'm now running around after a two-year-old. Yeah. It's, um, it's just you've got... It's not rocket science, really. The advantage that your first child has is that's the only time you only had one kid. So you had way more time to talk to them. Talking and having face-to-face interaction is about the most complex thing your baby's brain can do. If you like, the more of that that you have in the first year, the more face-to-face interaction with the person you love most in the world, the more you have of that in the first year, the more com- complexity your brain is gathering. Yeah. Um, because that's the most complex thing it does. So the more of that complexity, the flasher brain it wires up. So it's really all the extra face-to-face interaction the first one child's getting that shows, yeah. you know, I think it's for that advantage. As I've started to have this and share this information, steer people to go hunt you down because um, I can't explain it 
with the efficiencies that you do. Um, yep. Something that pops up is that people can absolutely relate. They think of their firstborn, they go, yep. And then they think of their yep. secondborn, like, absolutely. And you get the whole nods and the complete um, yep. confirmation that that's truth. Um, the next thing that comes up quite frequently is that they say, like, my the first child takes so much on generally population data, yep. if you will. Um, yep. The first child takes so much more time and is more high needs than the second child. Is that, is that any research that supports that theory? Well, only that same research that shows that we give, we meet that need. So we probably set them up to be higher needs because you've got only one kid. So you spend more time with them. Um, so then by the time you've got the second kid, they're not as needy because they've never had you one-on-one, the second kid. They've always been sharing you with this other needy kid. Yeah. Um, and now the other kid that's always had the one-on-one, the child, the first child, has to now share the second. So he's kind of set up to seem needy yeah. because he got all that extra attention at the start. So he is kind of set up to have a higher expectation of need. Yeah. And is I know that um, the reason for measuring success as um, – qualification and income is because it's measurable um what about the emotional development of that firstborn and and being tending to be more needy um does that impact there is a little bit of research yeah it doesn't attach well to well-being i think uh, you know firstborn children do better academically like you say that's what we tend to measure because they're nice and measurable and researchers can validate it and stuff um but in terms of emotional stuff, when we look for incidents of mental illness, suicide attempts, there isn't um, any really concisive studies on that. There's just, a, you know, you can look at the occurrence of that in individual longitudinal studies, and it looks slightly negative for the eldest child. It looks like there's a slightly higher chance of suicide or mental health issues with firstborn children. You certainly see anecdotally the idea that parents will do that nod thing again when you talk about the firstborn child being a perfectionist. Yeah. And no matter what they do, it's not good enough because they could have done slightly better. Yeah. You know? um, and that kind of, that attitude will set you up for a bit of depression and mental health and stuff because, of course, you're never going to be perfect. And if you've got a base program that says, no matter how well I do, I'm going to tell myself I should have done better, well, that's going to ultimately end in unhappiness. Yeah. So how, as yeah. a parent, years on or even in that process of yeah. having like that five-year-old or anything what what's the steps for a parent to be able to support that child to not have that the, what the research tells us very clearly is the more creative and unstructured play child-centered play you have under seven the less likely you are to have issues with that later you know with issues with anxiety and depression as a teenager so the way a parent sets a child up you know 50 percent of it's still genes remember yeah. so um but the, way, but, but the other 50% we can control. So what the research tells us is the best way a parent can do that is between the ages of two and seven that the child's involved in child-centered free play. Yeah. What that means in some plain language for parents is the, that the kids, how do I put it, the kids have to be in charge of the play. Yeah. There's still, it's not free range like we had as kids when you had to be home by the time the streetlights were on because there's no teachers around for that. So that's free range. Free play still has teachers, but the teachers aren't allowed to take charge and tell the kids what they're learning. The teachers, 100% of the time, have to follow the kids' learning. Because, um, yeah, whereas when you get past the age of seven, there's a change in the literature because children start to benefit from teacher-led instruction. 
So we, there's clear evidence that they start to benefit from about two and a half hours a day of teacher-led instruction after the age of seven. There's just no evidence for it under the age of seven. Wow. So um, it seems counterintuitive to parents in New Zealand and Australia. It's not counterintuitive if you're in Finland or Scandinavia. Yeah. It's just common sense. And that's why they get the best educational outcomes in the world and get the best you know, mathematicians and readers and stuff and top all the PISA scores um, because they leave them playing till seven. Yeah. Whereas um, here we've got the opposite idea. So it's counterintuitive to parents, but it's trying to get them to understand something like when your child at four wants to build a dam in the river for three hours and you want to interrupt that and sit him down and get him to write his name so he gets ready for school, how early he learns to write his name and get ready for school, after the age of eight, no one can tell for the rest of his life. So it doesn't matter whether he learns to do that at five or whether he learns to do it at seven because eight, no one can ever tell again. Um, it's, it's called, yeah. Anyway, you just can't tell after eight, right? So there's no advantage in doing that stuff early. Whereas if he's building a dam, what you think is wasting his time building a dam in a river for three hours because no one needs a dam, yeah. it's got no purpose, it has no outcome, um, to understand from the point of view of where else will your child learn to sustain their attention for three hours? They're not going to sustain their attention for three hours reading a book. They're not going to do that in anything that an adult is instructing them in. Yep. But where they will get to f focus their attention for three hours is if they are leading it and initiating it and getting right into building this dam. So parents have to understand what the literature calls the disposition behind learning. Yeah, The disposition is just an academic word meaning um, your feeling behind yep. you, how you feel as a learner. And under seven, it doesn't really matter how early you learn to write your name or know your colours or know your numbers or learn to read because by eight, we can't tell who learned it at three or who learned it at seven because by eight, they're all the same level. Um, but what sets you up, according to the literature, for sets your educational trajectory for the rest of your life under the age of seven is your disposition, how you feel about yourself as a learner, the dispositions that you bring to learning. Can you sustain your attention for three hours? Can you exercise autonomy in your learning um, and drive your own learning? Just basically all the things that the literature tells us you're supposed to aspire to under seven, all the social-emotional stuff, yep. it's all stuff that occurs naturally and best in free play. But we've developed this culture that thinks, no, we should get the kids ready for the test. We should do what China started doing three generations ago. Now sit three-year-olds down and get them ready for school. China's now undoing that policy themselves because they've realised that's just resulted in a whole lot of people that get high marks in exams and don't have any ability to initiate or to create or to innovate yeah. and don't get selected for leadership positions because leadership requires innovation, creativity, all the things you develop and play. So it's you know China's now swinging the pendulum back the other way yeah. and has changed it all to play based. Yeah. Um, but we still seem to be in the middle of the swing yeah. in New Zealand industry. It yeah. blows me to away. Copy England, move away from the research and to yeah. get kids ready. I mean, yeah. we're making them do it in New Zealand at five and six. I mean, this is changing. We have to say we're doing the curriculum and it's all changing and that change is underway. But what we've done for the last ten years is we've had five-year-olds at school saying, "Right now, you've got to learn to read." You're not really supposed to do that in the literature until you're seven, between yeah. seven and eight. There's yeah. Piaget's stages of cognitive development, so that's the average. So if you ask them to do it at five, that then tells the early childhood teachers that, oh, well, maybe we should be changing what we're doing in order to get it ready for them to go to school. Yeah. So now they want them doing it at four so that they can get ready to go to school. So now you're asking four-year-olds to do seven-year-old behaviours. Yeah. Um, of course, that's going to set a lot of kids up to go, I can't do it, and to fail, and that that is a disposition that I can't do it. I don't like learning. I'm not good at it. It's a mm. negative disposition. If they develop that disposition, as well. yeah, 
and they just have short attention spans and stuff because they don't focus on things for very long because it's too hard there. Yeah. It's what a teacher would say outside their zone of proximal development. Yeah. You've got to have kids inside this place where they're pushed a little bit, but they experience 80% success. And often a little boy who's not the firstborn child is at school at five or six and being asked to read. He's going to be like two years shy of really being able to do that. Yeah. And we're doing him no service except for teaching him that he's not very clever um, by making him do that two years early. I really think we'd be far better off to do what Steiner schools do, to do what we used to do when we followed Piaget stages of development more closely. If you waited and just introduced that when the child was ready, somewhere between seven and eight, they'd learn it in the six weeks, and their disposition would be, wow, I'm really clever, aren't I? Yeah. And that would set them up for a lifetime of success and be a lifetime learner. Instead, we've got lots of, and it's mainly boys, we're not the firstborn, yeah. who are at the end of that bowel curve of development, so aren't going to do that until they're ready to read and get into that frontal cortex stuff until the end of sort of seven to eight. Yeah, we're making them do it like in a long, slow, drawn-out, painful process of making them start at two or three years earlier, and they just learn, I don't like it, I'm not good at it. Yeah. And, and they disassociate from education for the rest of their, you know, because yeah. they're really our target risk group. Yeah, I boys can relate to that. I was, yeah, um, I'm number four. Boys. Four, right, four of six boys. You're high risk. High risk. I yeah, made I'm everyone else high risk, I heard. <laughs> and being number four, <laughs> I brought yeah, the average down. Yeah, that matching number, that's right. Did you share that with your siblings? <laughs> no, no, that's not. I, 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 don't, I don't listen to this. Um, yeah, but uh, with my experience there, it was um, a teacher decided in like year four that I had ADD because I rocked on my chair and looked out the window. Right, um, So okay. that, that was the framing ongoing then from, okay. from that day forward. And yep. it wasn't until I had like uh, that one teacher's aide that said, oh, hang on. Like just because he's not writing and doing that, he's actually – and she she did a um, verbal test with me, like a primary-style right. IQ test verbally. And then she was like, what yep. are these people talking about? And um, right. it was only after I left school that through finding interest and going down rabbit holes, I actually realized that I could mm. learn really efficiently if I was interested. Yep. It's good that you're able to learn that because I've got some really clever friends who've had a negative experience of school, but it's left them with a deeply held um, disposition that they're not clever. And um, that's really hard to undo in people. So you're lucky that the school system didn't scar you for life, that you were able to have other experiences to show, oh, no, the school system just didn't meet my type of intelligence. Yeah. The school system is, is focused on one very narrow band of intelligence. And if you happen to fall into that, you know, 15% of the population. Schools are quite a pleasant experience. Because yeah. I was in that 15%. My types of intelligence um, really fit well with school. Yeah. So I had a wonderful experience of school. I was shit at sports. Yeah. I was, um, you know, that was a big source of humiliation because there was lots of manly points in doing sports. And I was the fat kid that couldn't do any of that. So yeah. I was bad at stuff, but not schoolwork stuff. I got good self-esteem through that. I was brainy. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't have any mechanical intelligence or anything. There's lots of intelligences I don't have. <laughs> I've got no sense of direction. Like, but I've got the intelligence that you need for school. That audio, visual, yep. memory, repeat. You know, I work out I'm no more intelligent than other people, really. It's just I was unfortunate that my types of intelligence are the type that our school system is set up for. Yeah. And I have lots of friends who are geniuses and other things, but 
if you're a genius at music, is school really going to pick that up? If you're a musical genius, mm. if you're a, if you're a, if you're a genius doctor, is school really going to pick that up? Yeah. yeah. What's that name for that um, mechanical intelligence? Like yeah. We, that type. I've of, got none of that. Yeah, that's that's interesting to me. Um, how people can be really, really, and you like it just seems another language to so many people. Yeah, it does. Um, and so, nature intelligence too. Some people understand nature and how nature works and you know, not just photosynthesis and the breeding of plants and stuff, but an intricate, detailed knowledge of nature that some people just take as common sense. And yeah. Other people know nothing about that. Yeah. And that's where my, my own story in that experience has pushed us into what we do now in trying to support children to offer them that diversity in play and learning experience so they can have that yeah. sense of accomplishment and then get programmed mm-hmm. into that that dopamine response that then in turn yeah, promotes them yeah. to learn a lot better um, and then also fail at failure and overcome that failure so you get yeah. even more of a dopamine response and then that's where you're yep. going to develop your innate skills moving forward. Yeah. It's exciting. That's but what I meant we... about 80% success. Pardon? Because, you know, you exp- that's what I meant about 80% success being in your zone of proximal development. Yeah. You still experience failure 20% of the time, but you can handle 20% failure because you're coming from the strong, robust sense of accomplishment because you've got 80%. But even as a human being, when you drop way down below that, you start to feel insecure. So, yeah, it is about being challenged, but only challenged to the right amount. Yeah. And what was that percentage you shared about only 15% of children suit the learning style? Oh, no, I just pulled that figure out of my bum, really. That was just (laughs) like I just mean, you know, the school in general. Yeah. When you look across the wide, diverse cross-nectar of who you see at school, and all the people that were there when you were in Form 3 or Year 9, and then how many of those people were shaped by school and that decided it formed their life and was a really positive, successful experience for them. Yeah. And I think it's, I'd be lucky if it's 25%, you know, yeah. 15 25%. But I'm just guessing on yeah. that. How did we – what's, in your expert opinion, someone that's, like, been in this industry for so long and within the education, working in it and then consulting yeah. in it, how did we get to this – place where we have the data you look at finland and they have the data in like a really good practice yeah and even when i was there i asked the education minister i said why do you put such an emphasis on the early years and he looked at me like you're an idiot like he just was like that's a stupid question (laughs) and he just said we have an ethical responsibility too and i was like you're so finnish but then on the other end of the scale we see the china data saying okay well this the opposite's not working, and that is. But then we find us as Australia, New Zealand. How did we get yeah. wedged in the middle, in the ravine of yeah, uncertainty? Yeah, I mean, talk about that for it. <clears throat> yeah, just where does that come from? Yeah, I think it's got. It's trying to ride that balance of having parents involved in education, because you know when we moved, you know, tomorrow's schools and all that sort of stuff. But when parents got much more involved in education, which can be a good thing, but it's a double-edged sword. Parents are not trained teachers and not necessarily educated. A parent can easily think, nope, the earlier these kids get ready for school and know their alphabet and colours and numbers, the better off they'll be, because they don't know the research to say that's not true. That, yeah. that seems like common sense to them. So they will bowl ahead with those beliefs until you educate them otherwise. So I think the fact that what you know Finland and a lot of other countries have is a unified plan that's ratified by all the major political groups. Yeah that sets out a 10 or 20 year strategic plan for the education of children so that it's in line with the research and not a political football that yep. gets moved 
from election to election. Like with national standards was a bit of a political football. There's never a lot of data supporting national standards as the way to go. No, no international data supports moving to an assessment-driven curriculum. That's universally seen as a low-quality curriculum. Yeah. Yeah. We did it because education is a political football. So I think one of the things other countries have got is that unified cross-party agreement. It doesn't matter what the election result is. We can't screw our kids around like that. We're just going to have a research-based um, you know, curriculum regardless of who wins the election. I have to say, I do think we are making moves to that in New Zealand. I'm encouraged by the current Ministry of Education and the steps that they're taking. I mean, it hasn't happened yet, but I'm encouraged by the steps they're taking yeah. to do exactly that. Yeah. Well, even in the early childhood sector, just the, um, in my understanding, just the relationships between the centre operators and staff and the education department are a big shift compared to Australia. In New Zealand, it tends okay. to be, hey just reaching out, I'm your like area coordinator, what do you need help with yep. in New Zealand? And then you get here yep. and it's like, hey, I'm your regional coordinator, um, you need to do this or I'm going to breach you. It's just that, yeah. <laughs> it's just that yeah. shift in support versus your, your yeah. allies, you know? Yeah, and that goes to their training as well, really, and how they're trying to, to deliver that job. Because yeah. you're still, they're still trying to achieve the same outcomes. But whether you're doing it as a, hey, what can I do to support you? Or a, you are in breach of, yeah. is really just your modus operation, isn't it? Yeah. And so that's about your own training and yeah, your own culture. Yeah, we have to try to get into that. Break down the wall. So m- moving on, I just want to, from a neuroscience standpoint, and so mm-hmm. I can understand and be more effective in my quest to support more children, what is um, play to you? Um, play to me, because I so get immersed in the research, play to me is basically the system that human beings have evolved to facilitate the development of higher intelligence. Because like, mm-hmm. it's, it's the bedrock of what makes us innovative and creative. And that's really, you know, what makes us beyond being just animals that can repeat the same set of tasks yes. over and over again. Yes, yes. That ability to create and innovate. And I think that really comes alive between the ages of two and seven. And that's what I see in the literature is that the more of that spark and creativity and the more imaginary friends and the less we worry about alphabet and colours and numbers. I mean, alphabet, colours and numbers come into children's play naturally. Yep. It's not that that stuff's bad. It's ch- children will bring it all because it's all they're surrounded by them and they're surrounded by media. And so they will, and they will often be self-motivated to know what the letter is of their first name and stuff. They will, you know, that media, mm. that will come in before seven. But that's different from a teacher saying, interrupting their play and sitting them down and teaching them um, how to write their name. So, yeah, that's what play is to me. That's the, the more creative and innovative and free-spirited, but still challenged a bit that you are under seven. Yep. Um, the more play you have, the more intelligent you'll be for the rest of your life. Not just intelligent as an IQ, but more intelligent as in less likely to have anxiety and depression. Yeah. More, more emotionally intelligent as well. Because emotional intelligence is often actually just the ability to knock it up. You generate one solution, that doesn't work. So you generate another solution. When that doesn't work, you generate another solution. That's creativity. If you don't have creativity because you're a black and white thinker, right from the start, people are going, what color is this? What number is that? What comes after this? So you just think there's a right and wrong answer to everything. Then you'll set up for anxiety and depression in some ways because you've got this black and white thinking that generates one solution. And when it doesn't work, you think you've got the wrong answer and you give up. And the world's not full of one solution for anything. <laughs> no, no. So that creativity is so fundamental to our 
not just our intellectual intelligence, but yeah, our emotional intelligence as well. Um, that leads into a question that we had um, all the way from Taiwan, actually. And okay. um, that question says, how does a parent's level of emotional intelligence help or hinder the emotional intelligence of a child? So that's from um, Dan in Taiwan asking about his kids that are being raised in Taiwan. Yeah. Yeah. How does it help or hinder? Well, I can't imagine that would hinder at all. It's always going to be a help to be emotionally intelligent. So that's going to be a huge benefit to the child to be raised by someone that's already emotionally intelligent. I think children generally get those benefits because they they get the skill that you've got as a parent right from the very start because that's a skill that you treat them with. Yeah. So I think each generation gets a bit more emotionally intelligent than the previous one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, emotionally intelligent people are emotionally present. They're good listeners. They're reflective listeners. They reflect back what the other person said and listen to make the other person feel um, connected. Um, so, yeah, that's going to be a huge benefit to the child. The more emotionally intelligent the parent is, the better. Awesome. What a great answer. So this is from Cherie and the team at Little Apple Tree here on the Gold Coast, amazing Montessori Center. And they ask, So it's quite a question. Um, many children have experiences have experienced some form of trauma in the early years. If you could ask all educators to embed three daily approaches in their interaction experiences, which would positively impact the children in their ongoing brain development, what would they be? Okay, so when dealing with traumatized children, three things they can embed in their daily practice that would help the children with that trauma. Number one would be easy. Number one, anchor that child into one primary relationship at the centre. Having five quite good relationships with five teachers is going to do very, very little for the brain. Whereas if one of those teachers is you kind of love and they're special um, and they're your main and you really love that teacher, that will heal the brain. So make sure the child has the capacity to experience that. We don't just get five... Um, superficial relationships we get one really meaningful one so maybe having the same primary caregiver every time they come that'd be one of the practices um, number two would be to for that child's going to have an inflamed emotional brain because they've been traumatized so their world's going to be very emotional so you've got to reflect back their emotion so that they know they've been listened to so rather than going to telling the kid what to do um you have to go you know if he smacks the other kid over the head to take the toy tractor instead of saying oh you've got to ask for a turn um, you might say, I, I know you're really angry that he didn't give you the tractor. Um, and then, so you say what the emotion is and then say that, mate, if you want the tractor, you've got to go up and say, can I please have a turn? It's just basically reflect their emotion back first because that will calm that part of their brain and you'll just get way more compliance. That will work with all human beings, actually, but just the more traumatised they are, the more you need to do that. Um, so, yeah, number two, reflect their emotions before you try and tell them what to do. Um and number three practice for working with a um, traumatised child would be find out what is their way of self-calming and then teach that child and enhance, teach them to self-calm, but I would say rather than just teach them blind, find out how they self-calm and then enhance that. But, yeah, for a traumatised child, one of the best things you could do is teach them to self-calm. There you go. Three wow. best things you could do in your practice. So, so good. Um, another one from the same team. Um, we are a centre with a beautiful natural space for children to explore and be yeah. curious about. 
Yeah. Um, I don't know who would have contributed to that, might add. Worthy.co. Um, <laughs> what elements do you feel should be included in a space to support um, and nurture brain? Um, what, yeah, what stuff needs to be in that space to support and nurture brains? Um, you don't actually need any equipment if they've really got a nature space. You've got nature and you've got a river and you've got a forest and, um, and you don't need anything else, really. Nature will provide um, all of that. Um, I'd say you probably need the teacher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. in that environment and a skilled teacher that understands when to how to scaffold play yep. when to jump in and when to observe um, I think you need yeah, water Yeah, um, because water is one of the base elements and we learn so much about maths and the nature of transformative nature of properties and stuff so I just can't imagine how you do it without water yep. and that's what I mean if you're in a natural scene you don't need anything else because in a nature scene there will be everything you need every stick every shape and stuff if they're talking in a centre, it's already in a beautiful setting. What are some of the things that you need there? You need trees and you yep. need water. And if you don't have those things, and now we're starting to substitute, then I would make sure we have um, things that move, um, things that are non-uniform, mm. like nature provides, yep. like not all a flat surface, and non-uniform things. Yeah. Um, because children need to experience diversity, but to look for patterns within that diversity. The danger of a stocked up early childhood centre is it's all very repetitive. All the blocks are exactly the same size. Nature doesn't do that. So it's a whole different concept. So, yeah, I think the question is you don't really need any equipment at all if you've yeah. got a forest school. Yeah. But if you've just got a nice yard with pretty, and it's got, if it's got a nice nature setting, yeah. then um, yeah, I think the kids need lots more stuff to stimulate them. So they need the sand pit, they need the water, they need yeah. the imaginary play. They need the imaginary play to be as is able to lend itself to the imagination, you know, like loose in general, rather than a pirate ship, which is always yeah, just a pirate absolutely. ship. But something that can be used as a pirate ship or it can be used as a spaceship or it can be used as a doll's house, you know, just multi-purpose things, I think, so that children can express their creativity. Yeah. And, and things that take risks, a bit of danger. Risk. That was know? my next In question. my head, I mean, this is more the father than the expert, but um, I think in early childhood you should be risking things enough for them to maybe break a bone, but not enough to kill them. So, um, but if you're not even risking, because you shouldn't be risking anything to kill them, that's way beyond what you should be doing, so you shouldn't have done that. But yeah. um, if you're not going to risk them doing something like being on a swing or something that could break a bone, then you're actually sheltering them too much from appropriate risk-taking behaviour. So that yeah. would be my other thing. And Stuff be... that allows appropriate level of risk Yeah, I love the saying that, famous one better a broken bone than a broken spirit yeah yeah absolutely absolutely yeah, yeah. and what I think one this... of the goals of education has got to be to keep the fire in the eyes of the child that's another one that i really like yeah it's not about what they're learning so much as our job is to keep that fire going in their eyes yeah yeah that's beautiful and from a brain um neuroscience standpoint um what happens when a child is experiences and overcomes risk yeah um, they develop resilience so when you that's what all of us do when we experience risk but we've got the appropriate supports in place or the appropriate relationships and we come out the other side of it and we've learned to be resilient to that on a simple scale you do that if i fire a gun behind your head you freak out 
And by the 30th time of me firing a gun behind your head and no harm's come to you, you're not freaking out as much, but you're still jumping a little bit. It's a loud noise. It takes about 100 times before your brain goes, oh, I'm not scared of gunfire anymore because I've had 100 experiences of hearing gunfire and no harm's come to me. Um, so resilience to gunfire and resilience to general life stresses is a similar thing. Yeah. You experience it and you come out on the top of it and no harm come to you, the next time you're a bit more resilient to it. And then once you've experienced it a hundred times, you're pretty overall resilient to it, don't worry. <laughs> don't worry about getting shot at. Well, as long as they're not shooting at you, you're good. Yeah, yeah, it's true. People used to think resilience was an inborn trait, but it is really something that we can develop lots in you know, the way we raise kids, the way we interact with them. Yeah, so as an educated parent, what are the go-to ways to support your child to be resilient? Um, I think it's to have that, well, I mean, the number one research-based way is to have an at-home parent at home in the first thousand days of life. That's really the cold, boring science of it. That's the number one way. But that's because if there's a parent at home in the first thousand days of life, they've got, they're at a slower pace. So it sets the child's initial um, pace much slower because that parent's not rushing. Um, and there's just so much more face-to-face interaction, which allows for way more complexity. So that's one of the things we can do. Yeah. Um, but I know a lot of parents can't do that. I didn't do that for my kids, and they're fine. But, you know, but that's, that's the major thing in the literature you could do, the number one. Um, the other one is having kids having your, a way that they can communicate to parents respectfully but can still argue, basically. To have to shut up and do as you're told, and no, don't answer me back I'm a parent, doesn't set your kids up to be very resilient because they don't get to exercise any of those cognitive functions. You don't want smart mouth kids, but you want them to be able to have a conversation with you. So I think the Dutch people do this really well. Um, if, if, if I'm really blunt and just talking stereotypes, because there's a lot of Dutch people, but if I'm just talking stereotypes, I think if the average New Zealand or Australian heard Dutch parents talking to their kids at a cafe, they would think the Dutch kid was a little bit lippy and answered back a bit much because their culture is much more tolerant of children being allowed to answer back a whole lot more and argue things out. But it's still got boundaries on it, which is way more than we would. We've got to shut up and do as you're told culture. So that's another way to raise resilient children is to let them have a say. Like, like for instance, my kids, they weren't allowed, if I said it's bedtime, they're not allowed, they were not allowed to start arguing about, oh, it's not fair that I'm going to bed this time, no one else goes to bed this time. If they knew that if they want to talk to me about their bedtime, then they're to say to me in the morning, can we talk today about our bedtime? And we would talk about their bedtime after school. So because they're allowed to challenge their bedtime and they're allowed to say, hey, this is not fair, everybody else in the class goes to bed way later than us. I didn't believe that, but you know, that's what they're, <laughs> they're saying. Um, they're allowed to challenge it, but they're not allowed to challenge it when they say, right, come on, it's bedtime. Because yeah. I think that's disrespectful. So that was my way of, yeah, they're allowed to do it with the appropriate boundaries. Yeah. That helps raise resilient children. Yeah, a great... Um piece of advice i heard was that the parent has a power of a timeline there's children at the time being very reactive but our superpower is actually lengthening out that timeline letting that all drop and then addressing it and having that dialogue between and that's something i found super useful yeah they're they're so emotional and we can be emotional too as parents we can be triggered just like that but we do have that advantage if we can override our emotions with our frontal cortex and think long term, whereas children tend to keep emoting. Yeah, yeah. And mm. when it comes to this, mentioned it well. Um, when it comes to discipline, what role, if any, whatsoever, does discipline play in creating that resilience? In creating resilience? Yeah. Um, yeah. What discipline does? So that um, anyone that hits their children, they 
don't develop as a less children. So we have to define what discipline is. Because, you know, discipline actually comes from the word disciple. So it's about yeah. Jesus' disciples. So it's leading by example. And, you know, Jesus didn't beat his disciples with a stick. Um, it's So and I think if we go to that original thing about what discipline is, then, yeah, that, that is really good. That's leading by example and helping you to follow the right path. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the literature tends to divide parents into the three groups and the easy names that um, are jellyfish parents, brick wall parents, and backbone parents. Jellyfish have no spine, so they let the kids do whatever they want and the kids seem to be in charge. Brick wall is the sergeant major, who's really, really scary sort of parent. Shut up, nurse told. Yeah. And backbone is the ideal one because the backbone is firm and gives you structure and support, but it is also responsive and flexible. So it refers to the parenting styles. Basically, in a nutshell, the worst kids don't come from the jellyfish parents. The worst kids come from the uh, brick wall parents. The ones who are most likely to go to prison and commit suicide and all that come from the shut up, do as you're told yeah. parents. Uh, yeah, obviously, the good, good outcomes usually come from the backbone one. But it means if you can't be all balanced and talk about and do it the way that we're talking about, and you have to choose one of those dysfunctions, you're actually better off to be too soft and too hard. Those Ooh, kids get better outcomes. That's interesting because the default, and you know, there's so many myths around parenting and education. As I was preparing for this podcast, I think we could do a myth busting um, yeah. questionnaire with you, would be amazing. Maybe we could team up and do another episode of myth busting okay. with nathan wallace <laughs> that would be right. awesome um but the yeah that thing oh they're, they're a bad parent or the judgment because the child is like they just let that child get away with everything better than ruling with right. a stick yeah. it seems yep this is part of that awful atmosphere with other people isn't it it's a bit like that being a teacher you know it because lots of people have had kids. Everyone thinks they're an expert on your kids, so people will pass judgment about that stuff. And I think there's just a culture of that, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's just we have to counteract that. Yeah, a question I've asked many people around the world um, is if an educator has 20 minutes a day to, like, the most important 20 minutes a day, um, what's the most important thing they can do with their children? If an educator has 20 minutes a day, what's yeah. the most important thing they can do with a child? Yeah. Um, be a safe enough, non-judgmental person to be a safe base for that child to feel like they anchor into immediately and they just go, ah, oh, I'm with you. You know, like Miss Honey from the Roald Dahl stories. How you would just go, ah, oh, Miss Honey, I'm safe now. Everything's all right. And then let that child lead that 20 minutes. And the teacher's key word would be responsiveness. So the teacher wouldn't have, I wouldn't have a plan for that 20 minutes. I'd respond to the need of the child and I'd be focused on having such a high quality relationship that they would be safe enough to go, ah, and they send me, I'm safe now. And then tell me about their, what's important to them about their day, whatever it is I want to talk about. And I would scaffold and enhance that and, and help to shape their interaction to help them see their own brilliance, you know, and scaffold that. That's what I would do in that 20 minutes. Uh, what a way to wrap up this podcast. Um, amazing answer. Um, really beautiful. And I'm sure that that will hit a lot of people's hearts because we are in it. Like, as you mentioned earlier, we're not in early childhood and we're not teachers um, or supporters of children for the money. No. <laughs> Stupid if you are. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong field if you are. 
Um, yeah, you couldn't do me a cider. No. Um, I'm just going to say a huge thank you um, for your time and thank oh, you cheers, from, from from myself as a, as a father of a little girl and a little boy, a five and a three-year-old. Um, yeah. The talk and your content that you've shared is something I can constantly check in with as a father yeah. and I'm so passionate about sharing it with other parents and educators because i just find it so so valuable and um, yeah i appreciate you doing that brother that's great thank you for that not a worry so where could people find you so where they can find out where you're speaking so they can get some Easiest of this awesome place. content yep it's just to go to nathanwallace.com yep. you've got an event calendar on there or you can just type in where you are and they'll tell you when i'm going to be in that area or you can just tap on any date and find out where i am it's nice and easy to use so yeah. And yeah. I can't recommend going to see Nathan enough. So please go to um, nathanwallace.com and also head over to his Facebook as well. You're always posting yeah, fantastic yeah. articles um, that are backed up with the evidence as well. So yeah. I appreciate that. And you're it's right. such a positive, um, you've got such a positive page as well. It's always about sharing that information to get people on the front foot leaning into um the data and giving them the confidence to be amazing parents and supporters of children. So thank yeah, you I'm so lucky much. People follow like minded. It's great. Thank yeah. you. And um, we we'll, might do the myth buster episode at a later date. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be keen. Awesome. There's so many myths. Won't be short of data. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much for listening to another play it forward podcast. Um, I know there was so much content in that chat that's useful and you can apply it every day. So this is a type of podcast that you, I would encourage you to go back and listen to again and again. Also head over to NathanWallace.com and Nathan Wallace on um, Facebook. And thank you so much and look forward to, for you joining us again soon on Play It Forward.